Last week I spent time with you just going over a lot of scriptures. It was really intense on the, on the scriptures, de- just declaring Jesus Christ as the apostle of our faith, the one who was sent from heaven, who was the message regarding the coming kingdom, who is the Son of God, who is the Word, the eternal purpose and plan of God, shining in the world that gives light to every man regarding our purpose and our destiny that we were created for, the Word who became flesh and lived out what it means to be fulfilling our calling and our destiny, who was the exact representation of the image of God, the exact representation of his nature so that we could see what it is to live out as a man the image of God. So he came as the apostle bringing the message of the kingdom but also modeling for us what it is to be a citizen of that kingdom, showing us the glory of that kingdom, showing us the power of that kingdom, establishing that kingdom, and then he laid down his life to open up the doorway so that we could be made sons and daughters of the Most High God and enter in and live as children of that kingdom. He is the apostle of our faith. Everything regarding Moses... And all of the ministry that happened under Moses and the Old Covenant and all that was spoken of by the prophets points towards Jesus Christ so that he is the fulfillment. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He is the fulfillment of the storyline flowing through the Torah and through the prophets. He is the Messiah who has come. He is bringing the kingdom and establishing it, bringing the deliverance and releasing it that was prophesied about. He is the fulfillment. So the first thing that I'm going to do, seeing that I have limited energy this morning, is let somebody else preach for me. And we're just going to pray. I'm not expecting that as I preach this, there's something that is burning within my heart that I don't expect you to be getting first and second time around. But as I build throughout this year, I think it's going to open up and there's a, just a change within our hearts and our minds that's going to take, take place. I constantly rely on the Holy Spirit to do what my great preaching can't. Let me reverse that. I constantly rely on the Holy Spirit to do what my lack of ability in preaching can do. And I really do, and and quite honestly, I've been impressed with his work, in spite of me. You are epistles of what God can do in people's lives. So let's just pray. Father, you know what uh, needs to be delivered today. I thank you for all that you've done in this service, and I rejoice in it. I believe that you're going to bring us into uh, a greater interweaving of worship and intercession because you've prophesied it, we just don't know how to get there. But God, you're going to do it, and so we're open to the changes, we're open to the movements of that, we're willing to step aside, and God, allow you to do what it is that you want to do. 
and build the pattern that you want to build in this house so that we would be your house of worship and we would be your house of prayer. God, as we look at these thoughts today, I pray that you would open our hearts and that, God, for each person there would be a new reality that would open up. I pray that, God, in every heart there would come the question, what does this mean to me? How do I walk this out? What adjustment can I make in my thinking that opens my heart for more of what God wants to do? Lord, you work that question within every heart. And I thank you that you're well able to do it. Hallelujah. Amen. So we're doing the video on the law. Now, let me say, just for the sake of the tape, because this is going out, the voice that you're now going to be hearing is going to be either Tim Mackey or Jonathan Collins. This is a video that we're showing to the congregation called The Bible Project, which can be seen on the internet. It's a free presentation, which is incredible. And this is on the law. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder... Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. 
they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. I felt that that would do a much better job laying out Jesus coming to fulfill the law. In his life, he demonstrated the love and the compassion and the mercy of God. He confronted the rigidity of the legalism that was there. So that's why much of his miracles were done on the Sabbath day. It was an affront to the religious mindset, but it was a full reflection of the love and the mercy and the compassion of God. He ministered to the outcast. Instead of being repulsed by the leper, he reached out and he touched the leper and he transformed him. Instead of being there stoning the woman caught in adultery, he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he says to her, neither do I condemn you. 
go and sin more, no more. He, he represented the heart and the love and the compassion. He represented a kingdom of love. And then when he spoke and he taught, his ta- teaching sometimes seems very hard and demanding, but he was cutting through the shallowness and the hypocrisy so that you saw the one law about murder, another law about thou shalt com- not commit adultery, where you can live all of your life without actually having an adulterous relationship with somebody and yet be fostering adultery within your heart. You could actually take a law of Moses, which was the writ of divorcement, which was given because of the hardness of Israel's heart, that men were divorcing their wives. So how do we protect the spouse? We give her a writ of divorcement, which protects uh, her from the accusation of being an adulteress and make sure that she has her dowry so that she would be set rather than be the victim of that adultery. But instead, men were using the writ of divorcement as an excuse to divorce their wives for any reason so that once divorced from her, we can now marry someone else and we can actually commit adultery, but it looks nice and legal. You see? And so as you see Jesus teaching, he goes through how because of the hardness of their hearts and because of the self-centeredness of their hearts, they would twist the laws, they would twist the teachings of Moses in order to justify their evil, to create a religious cloak over a hardened heart. He would challenge the way that they did their devotion to God so that they would look like they were very devout in their prayers. But the motive of their heart was to get praises from men and to appear as though they were devout. And so he would cut right through their religious behavior so that their prayers, their giving of alms, he he would go right to the heart of the matter because the heart was the issue. But he had come to change hearts. And so their righteousness was going to have to far exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It was going to have to be a righteousness that came from the heart. And so not only did he teach, but he modeled. He modeled. And so in modeling what love was, his example infuriated the religious leaders. Because he was showing the true love and the true compassion and the true mercy of God, not living under the rigidity and the demands of the law. Not succumbing to that pressure. And so with his very life, he demonstrated what it is to live from a heart of love. Not only when what he was doing was popular, But when everything turned against him and the hatred and the jealousy and the envy of men began to cause great persecution for him and he even demonstrated that heart of love towards those who began to plot his death, who brought him in, who had him falsely accused, who insulted him, 
who abused him, who crucified him, and took his life. And in the midst of it, with every justification for hatred, for anger, for revenge, he demonstrated the kingdom of love. He had come to establish the kingdom of love. And in his life, his way of life, in his teaching, in the way that he faced suffering, in the way that he faced death, fully loving his Father, and fully loving mankind, even his enemies, he demonstrated the very words that he taught. Establishing for us a way of life to follow, a way of teaching that we are to become disciples of. So he's establishing a kingdom, and then through the laying down of his life, he has not only fulfilled the prophecies, he's not only fulfilled righteousness, but now he fulfills and fully satisfies the justice of the law for all mankind. He makes full payment. He ends the sacrificial system. When that is ended, the veil in the temple is torn in twain and access to the presence and the glory of God is made available for mankind. He establishes a new covenant with new laws, okay, with a, with a new way of worship. And he invites us to come into that. Now there's so much. This is just overwhelming to try and talk about because there's so much. But we're just laying down that Jesus is the, the apostle. He has come with the message of the kingdom. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He has not only announced the kingdom, but he has modeled what it is to be a citizen of that kingdom. What it looks like to live from the heart of that kingdom, which is a kingdom of love. As he's doing that, he brings 12 disciples close to him so that they can be with him, so that he can challenge them on what it is to truly believe and walk out their faith. He challenges them as to the power of God, the reality of God. He challenges them in the face of need, in the face of suffering, in the face of sickness, in the face of the demonic, in the face of lack. He challenges them in the face of, of nature itself to believe in God, in the supernatural power of God, the reality of his kingdom. And they begin to minister in that power. They begin to learn how to walk and to model that. They learn the heart of it from him, which is the heart of love. And they learn the power of that kingdom. In it, they listen to his teachings and have the opportunity to go to him and to be able to ask questions about his teaching. Always scratching their heads as they're walking through the process because he didn't have the ability to impart his message to them in a way that they could fully understand it either. In fact, he said to them, I have so many things that I'd like to share to you, but you don't have the capacity for them right now. Right? This would be an ongoing process. And then 
Much to their shock, he went to the cross. They were expecting a Messiah who would come, who would overthrow Roman oppression and would reestablish the kingdom of Israel and bring peace. But that was not the kingdom that he came to establish. He came to establish the kingdom of love. And in his final act of conquering, he went to the cross, he endured the suffering, he did not allow it to conquer him. But he conquered evil with good. He conquered hatred with love. And he surrendered himself fully in love to the purpose of God and in love for us to the reality of death. And he shed his blood. But then God raised him from the dead. And he showed himself again to these disciples. And he opened up the scriptures the law and the prophets, and showed how he must suffer and die. And he must rise again and enter into his glory. Opened up the scriptures to them. Caused their hearts to burn within them as he laid out for them the reality of the kingdom. And then he told them to wait in Jerusalem because they were going to receive power from on high in order that they could be witnesses The core of that word witnesses is ones who laid down their lives in order to spread this message of the kingdom. Now, I just want to introduce the concept of the message of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the gospel of forgiveness. The gospel of the kingdom. And so the disciples went and Jesus ascended into heaven. They waited, received power from on high. We have that story. And then they went and they began to to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and to begin to expand his kingdom. And in that process we read letters that were written by Peter, by John, by Jesus' brothers, James, by Jude, and by the Apostle Paul, who was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus and became an apostle to the Gentiles. And they went about establishing what we call churches or the ecclesia, the called out ones who are called out to be citizens of a kingdom, to be a part of a holy nation, to be a peculiar people who would show forth the praises of the one who had called them from darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I'm quoting scriptures all over the place. I'm just not giving you references. I didn't prepare a sermon. I'm just talking out of my heart today. I gave you lots of scriptures last week. These are all in the scriptures. Now, what I want to do is take a moment here, and I want to play for you One of the epistles. So we're going back to the Bible project, to these wonderful people who are going to lay out one of the epistles. And what I want you to do as you look at their writings, I want you to see how the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the way Jesus lived life, I want you to see 
how it creates the core and the foundation for the letter and the teaching that the apostles are bringing to the church. So I want you to see in that, I want you to get a picture as Jesus Christ, the apostle, coming to establish a kingdom and a way of life within the kingdom that is now being, that baton has now been given to the disciples who are going out, who are not teaching us how to do church. They're teaching us as a people, the ecclesia, how to do Christ. Let me say that again. They are not teaching people how to do church. They are teaching what we call the church how to do Christ. The foundation of this being is if you are in a community and they only see you doing church, but they don't see you doing Christ, you are not an extension of this kingdom. You are some other kind of institution, but you are not an extension of this kingdom. Let's watch this video. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. 
For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians, and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1-3, through and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. 
But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus's love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. So do you see how Christ, who Christ is, how Christ lived, Christ's values are central to the teaching that is, now I could put up letter after letter, and we're probably going to put up more letters as we go along, so that you can see that right in the foundation of every letter, the apostles are teaching people within their circumstances and their culture how to live Christ. They see their own lives, what they must go through, the cost that they must pay, and even the martyrdom that they must face, as just simply an extension of the story and the expression of Jesus Christ. And they are calling those people who have been called out from the world, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, no longer to live for themselves in the self-centered way of life that they have been living. As, how does this make me feel? Uh, what, What does this do for me? but instead to see their lives as an extension of the story 
of Jesus Christ, an extension of the expression of Jesus Christ, so that in every situation, he who is our apostle is being expressed. He who came and established the kingdom and the way of life is being expressed through how we live, so that in your workplace, you see yourself there as an extension of Jesus Christ. And if, if you are being given favor, you are using that favor not for self-promotion, but in order to be able to bring an influence and a testimony of Jesus Christ. But should you be experiencing hardship and persecution, you see that as a part of the story of Jesus Christ, and you respond as Christ would respond to it. So that in everything that you're doing, it's not about you anymore. It's that you are there as a representative of Jesus Christ to extend his story, to extend his glory, so that in the place where you are, the neighborhood where you are, the community where you live and you operate, in that place you are an extension of this kingdom of love. You are no longer living this self-centered life, but you are living a life to fully express the nature and the character of Jesus Christ in everything that you do. And your story is not a story of forgiveness and go to heaven. Your story is the story of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. How he came and how he selflessly emptied his life in order to provide life for us. How he lived that life of love. And in fact, if you read the gospels, those are the apostles simply telling the gospel, which is stories of Jesus Christ, which happen to go into many different types of settings and needs where Jesus gave himself as a servant of love to all kinds of different people. It's a testimony of Jesus Christ. And we become the testimony of Jesus Christ in human form, in every place where we're at. And part of that love is to do miracle signs and wonders. But if miracle signs and wonders are about building up my identity as a believer and a spirit-filled, a spirit-anointed person, we're not extending the story. That's the story of us, not the story of love. But if when we're faced need, with need, our hearts are filled with his love, our lives are dedicated to extend his story, then we are going to minister love even when it's rejected. And even when it's rejected and somebody insults us or, or turns against us or looks at us as though we're nuts, we're going to respond with love. We're going to be delighted that that's a new opportunity. This is going to challenge every area of our lives because even though we say, even though we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, do you hear where I'm coming from? We're going to look at that. We're going to, we're going to keep pressing that through. We're, we don't need to belabor it today. Jesus is the apostle. He came to establish a kingdom and a way of life within that kingdom. He's redeemed us so that we can be a part of that kingdom, so that our sin can be covered, so that we can receive the Holy Spirit and be transformed from self-centered living to Christ-centered living. He came to do that. And now, in each one of our cultures, in each one of our situations, the challenge is how to become an extension of Jesus Christ. And so all of the apostles 
begin to speak to different people in different cultures, challenging them to live out the Christ reality, not to do church. We become really good at doing church. It's just a real challenge to do Christ in our generation. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for what you're doing among us. We just ask that you continue to lay the foundation in our hearts and minds. And I pray that even this week, as we meet situations, that question would come up. How am I going to do Christ in this situation? How can I represent Christ in this situation? Who is Christ in me to empower me to represent him in this situation? And I pray that there just would be a growing tide of this reality. Now, Lord, you've said if we eat any deadly thing, it shall not hurt us. And we have cake <laughs> with lots of sugar. Hallelujah. But some, hallelujah, <laughs> some more healthier than others. Would you bless our fellowship together? Hallelujah. And increase our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.